Good morning and grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Today is the first Sunday of Advent, and we lit our first Advent candle today, which is the prophet's candle, or the candle of hope. You guys believe it's already Advent? It seems like it's just kind of snuck up on me. It's happened really fast. In some of the past years on this first Sunday of Advent, I've preached from this same passage from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And in the past, I've focused on the names that were given for the coming Messiah, names like Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God, and Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And these are indeed wonderful names, names we should know and understand the meanings of. But for this morning, I'd like to look at this passage with a little different focus. There's a very important phrase that's found in verse 2 of Isaiah 9, and it says this, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. As we read our passage this morning, let's read it through the lens of the light that has come into our world, because this prophecy was fulfilled some 2,000 years ago when Jesus brought the light of God into our sin-darkened world. Uh, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, and I invite you to please stand with me as you're able for the reading from God's Word today. This morning I'll be reading Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. should be a very familiar passage to us. <coughs> if you're following along in the Pew Bibles, it's found on page 489. Isaiah 9, beginning at verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Lord, some amazing, wonderful promises for us in this passage today. As we look at this, Lord, I pray that you would open your word to us, that your Holy Spirit would teach us and apply it, Lord, to our lives. And as always, that the words of my mouth and the attitudes and meditations of all of our hearts together would be pleasing and acceptable to you. <coughs> and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <coughs> so 
So this is a long passage, and there's a lot in it, but I'm really focusing this morning just on mainly that one verse, verse 2. And as we look this morning at the light that was prophesied to come into the world, I want to begin by asking you a question. How many of you have ever been in a place where there was no light whatsoever? I mean, total 100% darkness. Anybody? A lot of you. Wow, good. Sharon and I and the boys were visiting Sharon's parents down in Mesa, Arizona a number of years back, and we went to visit a place called Karchner Caverns. You remember that, Mark? Yeah. Karchner Caverns is a series of caves that was discovered back in 1974 by two men who were exploring the limestone hills at the base of what's known as the Whetstone Mountains. And in the bottom of a sinkhole, they, they found a narrow crack that led into this hillside, and they felt warm, moist air coming out of that crack, so they knew there at least had to be some kind of a cave inside. Well, they went in, and they ended up exploring this whole cave system for about four years. And they were amazed at all the different rooms in this vast cave system. They realized that this needed to be preserved, so they got in touch with the owners of the land, the people who owned the property, who were James and Lois Karchner. And they soon turned it over to the state of Arizona to, pre to be preserved as a state park. We were able to tour part of this cave system. And it was an incredible thing to see. What's really amazing is when you get way down inside the caves. And then the tour guide shuts off all the lights. You find yourself in total darkness. There's absolutely no natural light there at all. I just saw... Priscilla doing this, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. It was so dark. How many of you are afraid of the dark? Eh, not many hands going up. We're all older now, right? I'll admit that I actually still don't really like the dark. Something about the dark still bothers me today. In our passage today, we're told that people had been walking around in darkness. Now, had they been exploring caves? Did they maybe have their foster grants on so everything looked just a little darker to them? Had the batteries gone out of their flashlights? No. They were walking around in a different kind of darkness. What's being described here in Isaiah chapter 9 is a spiritual darkness. This was a time when the light of God had literally been shut out by the people themselves. In fact, by the time that Jesus came to earth to be born of a virgin, which is what this prophecy is looking forward to, there had been no prophet of God to speak to the people for 400 years. <clears throat> I want you to look at the words toward the end of chapter 8, right before this passage, because they describe the state of darkness that the people have placed themselves in. Beginning at verse 19, it says this, when men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only darkness and 
distress and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Not a very pretty picture, is it? For back then, the present state and then the future state of the people of God, the nation of Israel. But it's where they were walking when this prophecy was written. They had turned their backs on God. They were consulting mediums and spiritists instead of consulting God. They were indeed walking in utter spiritual darkness. And darkness can be a very uncomfortable place. Darkness can be confusing, right? We don't know which way to go. Sometimes darkness can even be terrifying. If you were sitting in your house and you heard a strange noise and it's the middle of the afternoon and it's light out, you might think to yourself, huh, that's a little odd. I wonder what that might be. But it probably wouldn't bother you that much. But if you hear a strange sound in your totally darkened house at three in the morning, your wife will begin to nudge you and tell you, you need to go find out what's going on, right? I know what happens in our house. In the middle of the night, darkness can breed fear. How many of you have had to get up in the middle of the night for something, and instead of turning on a light so you can see where you're going, you decide to trust your memory of where everything is? What usually happens? You end up running into a piece of furniture or maybe knocking something over with your arm or your hand. There's a simple little riddle that asks the question, why did the Lord give us shins? And the answer is so that we can find furniture in the dark. Maybe even worse, how many of you have gotten out of bed barefoot in the dark, knowing exactly where you're headed, only to have one of your bare feet come down on, let's say, a Lego that's been left out by one of the kids, or something even worse maybe left by one of the pets? I've done this in the past. I know Sharon has done this in the past. Sometimes it's better to just turn on a light so we can see where we're going and make sure we don't step where we shouldn't be stepping. And that's exactly what the prophet Isaiah tells us that God did for us. He turned on the light. Let's look at this concept of light for a little bit and see how it plays out in our lives. <coughs> there are many, many papers and studies that have been written to describe light. There have been many scientists who have studied light and tried to figure out exactly what light is and where it comes from. So as not to bore you with all kinds of data and, and graphs and all kinds of things to explain light and light waves and light rays, I'm going to break it down into something very simple. God created light. Pretty simple, right? What's the first thing that God spoke into being in Genesis 1? It was light. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then God separated the light from the darkness. Looking at light, it's amazing that God created light in a way that reflects who he is. Here's a description of light from one of those scientists. This is physical light he's talking about. He said, light is constituted of three rays or groups of wavelengths, each distinct from the others. Not one of those three rays would be light without the other two. Each ray has its own separate function. He says the first type of ray originates, the second type of ray illuminates, 
And the third type of ray consummates. That was his simple description. Now let's see how these three different rays of light illustrate the Trinity, or the three-part nature of God. The first ray, often called invisible light, is the light that originates and is neither seen nor felt, just like God the Father, who is the origin of light, who reigns in heaven, but we don't see him or feel him. The second ray is both seen and felt. It's the light that illuminates, just like God the Son, Jesus, who lived on earth. Jesus came to bring the light of God to earth in a way that we could see and understand. The third ray of light is not seen, but it's felt. It's felt as heat. It's the light that consummates. Kind of like God the Holy Spirit, whose influence is felt by us, but he's not seen physically here on the earth. The prophet Isaiah foretold that one day, the light of God would come to earth in a way that we could all see and understand. He said the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now Isaiah often spoke his prophecies in the past tense. If you look at this, it looks like it's already happened, right? He's using what commentators call a prophetic perfect tense. And what this tense does is it stresses the certainty of the fulfillment. Isaiah was so sure that his prophecy would come true that he spoke of it as if it had already happened. And I want to ask you a question. Is there any doubt as to who Isaiah is talking about here? I think the previous verse, verse 1, tells us pretty clearly who this light is. The first verse talks about how the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali had been humbled in the past, but that in the future, Galilee would be honored. Now, Zebulun and Naphtali were two of the ten tribes of Israel that had rebelled against the king and had split off to form the new nation of Israel to the north. <coughs> the remaining two tribes in the south became known as the land of Judah. Zebulun and Naphtali, again, were two of these ten tribes in this northern kingdom of Israel. But they were pretty insignificant tribes. They were rarely mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament and were never spoken of as having any particularly important role in anything. That is, until God mentions them here in Isaiah 9. And these are the only tribes in the northern ten tribes of Israel that God included in any kind of connection in a prophecy about the coming Messiah. Why do you think that is? Well, let's think about where Jesus lived for a minute. Of course, we all know that Jesus was born where? Come on, scholars. Bethlehem. Where's Bethlehem? It's in the south. It's in the land of Judah, actually south of Jerusalem. But then Herod learned about this prophecy of a king being born in Bethlehem, and he wasn't happy about it. He saw this new king as a threat to his own throne, and he sought to kill him. So Joseph and Mary were warned in a dream about this, that this was going to happen. So they fled with their newborn baby or this toddler or whatever age he was at that time down to Egypt, where they lived until King Herod died. That threat to Jesus had now been removed, and the family, it says, returned to their home but not 
the home in Bethlehem where Jesus had been born. No, they returned to the home they had left years before, their home in Nazareth. And Nazareth was in the region of Galilee. Guess which tribes once inhabited the land of Galilee? That's right, Zebulun and Naphtali. In fact, Matthew tells us in his gospel in chapter 4, in verses 13 and 16, that early in Jesus' ministry, that Jesus left his hometown of Nazareth, and it says this, He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. And he wrote this, he says, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And then he quoted from Isaiah. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. These words that Matthew spoke came right out of our passage for today from Isaiah 9. And these people who were living in the area of Galilee, in, in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, these were areas that could very easily have been characterized by spiritual darkness. These ten tribes that had split off had fallen really far away from the Lord. They had intermarried with the peoples of those land and they had taken to their ways of worship as well. I believe that the phrase, the people walking in darkness, actually refers to everyone because all mankind has fallen into sin and all mankind has been walking in the darkness of our sin until Christ came to earth. But it certainly pertained to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Isaiah was prophesying, of course, about the coming Messiah. And John wrote the fulfillment of this prophecy in John chapter 1, which we read about earlier today in our scripture reading. In verses 4 and 5 of that passage, this is what John wrote. In him, speaking of Jesus, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. John wrote, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. That first chapter of John continues and says that the people that Jesus had come from, the Jewish people, they didn't understand who he was or why he had come. It says he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Because people were walking in the darkness of their sin, they didn't recognize who Jesus was. They didn't realize that he had come to shine God's light into their sin-darkened lives. More than any of the other three gospel writers, John uses the analogy of light to describe Jesus' ministry here on earth. In fact, Jesus himself used it many times. When Jesus stood up at the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 8, it was right in the middle of what was known as the light ceremony, Jesus stood up and he proclaimed to everyone that he was the light of the world. He told them that whoever followed him would never walk in darkness, but would have the light of life. <clears throat> in his own words, Jesus was telling the people that he had come to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah had written some 730 years before. He was that great light that the people walking in darkness would see. He was the light that had now dawned on those who were living in the land of the shadow of death. The Apostles Paul spoke about this as well in his second letter to the church in Corinth. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul wrote these words, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Then he said this, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Light and darkness are contrasted really throughout the scriptures. Especially we see it in the book of Isaiah and the book of John. I want to share some of these contrasts with you this morning. First, let's look at some of the characteristics of, of darkness. One of the characteristics of spiritual darkness is idolatry. Idolatry, which is spoken against a lot in the prophecies, and not only preaching against the, the practices of the Canaanites back then, but also the tendency of people even today who will focus on anything and everything other than God. Or they simply focus on themselves or place something else ahead of God in their lives. It's all idolatry, part of walking in the darkness. Another characteristic of darkness is bondage. People who live in darkness are enslaved to the things of the dark. They may not realize it, but the things that they own and the things that they love actually have enslaved them, and they own them. Those who have never turned to Jesus for forgiveness and salvation, they are also still in bondage to sin. And Jesus came to break our bondage to sin. <coughs> Excuse me, by shining his light so that we could see that we were in bondage and we needed to be set free by him. Another characteristic of darkness is, is, is blindness. We can think of being in that cave and not being able to see anything. Our eyes still worked, but we couldn't see. Satan has clever ways of creating spiritual blindness so that those who are enslaved by him, those who are in bondage to him, actually think that they're free and living according to their own rules and their own dictates. But they are literally captives, unable to recognize their own true condition because of spiritual blindness. Another characteristic of darkness is foolishness. The Bible has a lot to say about the fool in the book of Proverbs. But the main characteristic of the fool is that he listens to and only trusts in himself. And he refuses to seek wisdom from any other source besides himself. The last characteristic of darkness I want to talk about is, is confusion. Sometimes it's described in, in, in the scriptures as, as a crooked path. The Bible reminds us, reminds us that the way of the sinner is hard, because the one living in darkness is blind, he is bound, and he blunders his way through life. And sooner or later, he's going to trip up and he's going to fall by trying to follow his own crooked path. Confusion marks his every step. These are the characteristics of darkness, walking without the light of Christ. But now let's contrast those with the characters of light. I said that the first characteristic of darkness is idolatry, that, that any focus on anything other than God is idolatry. The contrast here is that 
with light, we have the true presence of God. And when we have the true presence of God, why would we worship anyone or anything else? God promises to indwell any person who turns to him for forgiveness. And with God's presence in our lives, we have many benefits. We talked about some of those in our Thanksgiving Eve service last Wednesday evening. So by receiving the light, we see clearly to worship God, because he's the only one who is worthy of our worship. The second characteristic of darkness is bondage, but with light comes release from that bondage. Jesus told us that when we know the truth, what? The truth will set us free. Since Jesus embodies both truth and light, he releases from bondage anyone who will choose his light over the darkness of sin. Blindness was another characteristic of darkness. We can't see in the dark, just like we were deep down in those caves. But darkness also brings spiritual blindness. Anyone whom Satan has blinded is given back his sight as God removes those blinders of Satan when we come to faith in Christ. The New Age movement promises enlightenment, but only God is truly able to enlighten a darkened soul because only Jesus is the true light of the world. We said another characteristic of darkness is foolishness. But the light of God in our lives brings with it the wisdom of God. We said that the main characteristic of the fool is that he listens to and trusts only in himself. Well, the light of God brings wisdom as we learn to listen instead to God's word and place our trust in Jesus and lay aside our own wills to follow his. The last characteristic of darkness was confusion or, or a crooked path. Basically, not being able to see where we're going. God's light makes crooked paths straight. The Bible teaches us that the way of the sinner, again, is hard, but God promises to make the path straight for the one who puts his trust in Christ. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 tells us, To trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will what? He will make your paths straight. God will make the crooked paths straight for those who follow and live in his light. Kind of takes us back to when we get out of bed at night and try to wander around the house on our own in the dark. Eventually, we're going to run into something, maybe even step on a Lego. Or maybe we step on the Lego first, then we hop around on one foot while trying to dislodge the Lego from the other one, and then we run into or fall over something else. And if we had just turned on the light in the first place so we could see where we are and where we're headed, we would have been much better off. And that's exactly what Isaiah said that God would do for the world. He would turn on the light for us. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light would dawn. When Jesus came to this earth as God incarnate, what we celebrate during this Advent season, he came to shine God's light into a sin-darkened world. He came as the light of the world so that sinners 
could see the way to God, so that sinners could find their way to God. By being the light of the world, Jesus has removed all of the obstacles that were there in our way when we were walking in the dark. If Christ has come into your life and granted you faith, you don't have to be afraid of the dark anymore because you are now walking in the light of Christ. Now, will there still be Legos on the floor at times? Will people sometimes rearrange the furniture on you now and then? Sure. We live in a sinful world, and until Christ comes to reign eternally, comes back for us, that sin is still around us each and every day. But if we are living in the light of Christ, our eyes are then open to the sin around us. We can see where the furniture is, we can see where the Legos are, and we can step around them instead of stepping on them. Because we have the light of the world, Jesus Christ, lighting our way and guiding our steps. Again, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. As each new day brings light with the dawn, may the light of Christ shine in you each day as you begin, and then through you throughout the day, and then throughout the year, that that we might be that light for others and, and help them those who were walking in darkness to see the true light of the world, the light of Christ, and then turn to the only one who can truly light up their lives. If your life has been lit up by the light of Christ, don't you want to share that light with those around you who are walking still in the darkness? So may the light of Christ dawn in us each day, not only during the season of Advent, but throughout the whole year. Please pray with me. (coughs) Heavenly Father, I thank you that you sent your son Jesus to be the light of the world. I thank you that because he went to the cross for us and shed his blood, because you conquered death on our behalf and Jesus rose from the grave, I thank you that, that we now have that light living in us if we have received salvation through the grace of God. Thank you for lighting up our lives, Lord. Help us to shine your light so others around us who are still walking in the darkness can see their way to you as well, so they can be forgiven, so they can be saved, so they then can walk in the light. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to this earth to be our Savior. Help us, Lord, to keep our focus on you during this season of Advent. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.